0: I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of Warriors In Their Own Words. In partnership with The Honor Project, we've brought this podcast back at a time when our nation needs these stories more than ever. Warriors In Their Own Words is our attempt to present an unvarnished, unsanitized truth of what we have asked of those who defend this nation. Thank you for listening, and by doing so, honoring those who have served. Today, we'll be hearing from Colonel Che Bolden a Marine Corps aviator who served for 26 years with multiple deployments during the global war on terror. Okay,
1: Uh, my name is Che Bolden. Uh, I am a retired United States Marine. I retired the rank of Colonel in 2019. You know, my perspective on military and military service uh, was, was certainly shaped by my relationship with my father and and with those around me as I grew up, um, I grew up you know in the in the all throughout the 70s, early 80s, and the environments that I was in, all of the people and at that time it was predominantly men because that was who was serving at the time. We hadn't hadn't opened the doors fully to women uh, and others, but the men that I came across when I was young were just incredibly impressive. You know the way they comported themselves, the way they treated people. Uh, the empathy to match their sternness uh, was something that I thought was really impactful on how I live my life every day. Um, You know, that was the day and age when you couldn't go down the street without somebody calling back to your parents and telling them what you did. Uh, You know, it was kind of the raise a village or the takes a village kind of thing. But everybody I saw that I was looking up to had that one commonality and that was that they had chosen to take up the cloth of the nation and serve. And so I always knew that at some point I was going to going to serve myself. I didn't know how I was going to get there. Um, like many kids, I, I did the sine wave of I want to do this, I want to do that. At one point, I thought I was going to be a doctor. Another point, I thought I was going to be a lawyer, even an architect. I did always see that I was going to be a, a fighter pilot, if you will, uh, in there. Even though that didn't actually come true, I can talk about that in a bit. But I always saw that. I just didn't know what it meant for me in the long term. Um, but You know, growing up in my household, um, my father's father, my mother's father had all done what they could. Even my uncle on my father's side had served. And so when it came time for me to make the decision, it actually was somewhat of a of an accident, to be quite frank. I only applied to, I think, four schools. And the one school I wanted to go to was the only one of those four schools that turned me down. And so in in a in a fit of depression I accepted an appointment to the Naval Academy. Now that's probably going to upset some people because I know a lot of people really try hard to get into that institution. Um, it's a great place to be from, and and I I don't regret my choice at all. But it wasn't my first choice. Once I got there, it took a little bit of time for me to warm up to the military. I, I even though I grew up with a Marine father, he was not the the prototypical Marine. He you know he wasn't a harsh disciplinarian. You know I did not grow up saying yes sir, no sir, yes ma'am, no ma'am. Um, And so the adjustment of when I got to the Naval Academy was a bit of a rude awakening for me. Like most people at the Academy, I didn't have any issues in high school. Uh, I had been a proverbial star athlete, if you will. And so that kind of helped ease the transition. But when it came to military service, I had no clue what I was getting myself into because it was nothing of what I had seen. I was still very, uh, I still looked very admiringly on those who had influenced my decision to go. Um, But that admiration did not translate into an appreciation, uh, you know, as I was being woken up at, you know, O dark 30, getting yelled at and, and put into a brace. So my entire time at the Naval Academy, I continue to kind of think about what I was going to do. And uh, once we got to the midpoint, for those who are familiar, once you take your first class of your second semester, uh, it's called two for seven. At that point, you're locked in. So, whether you graduate or not, you're still going to do your time in the military. But even then, I, I knew some of the areas that I thought I wanted to do. I knew I was going to serve, but I only thought I was going to serve for five years. But when it came down to it, there was some issues that I had while I was at the Naval Academy uh, that led me to finish in the top 98% of my class. Um, And that's a joke that I tell all the time that I actually stole from John McCain. He often said he was in the top 90% of his class. Uh, I'm I'm pretty sure I matched him, if not bettered him by just barely graduating, but what they call someone who has a diploma from the Naval Academy, a graduate. Uh, And I wanted to go Marines, but because of my performance academically, mainly, uh, I did not get to select Marine Corps when when I went in for the service selection which was a bit of a, a blow because uh, I remember some of the most fateful words I'd ever heard were midshipman Bolden, welcome to the surface warfare community. And I and I, I thought my life was over because uh, I did not want to be on a ship. I didn't like sailing. Uh, I didn't like Hayes Gray underway and uh, I didn't know what I was going to do. So that was the first and only time where I really kind of questioned whether or not I really wanted to serve because it didn't feel right to me. And that that may sound a little awkward, Fortunately, uh, and I've never met this man, I don't know who he is, don't even know his name, but I think he was a retired gunnery sergeant who was probably a Hill staffer or maybe even a representative, I'm not sure. Uh, But he had heard that uh, there were a couple of midshipmen who wanted to go Marines uh, and were not permitted to go Marines because we didn't make the cut, so to speak, and he intervened and I believe uh, helped find three ROTC slots somewhere out in the ether uh, to provide for myself, my roommate, and another one of my classmates uh, to go Marines. And the reason being, you know, I, my father had been a 20-plus-year Marine. My roommate's father had been a 20-plus-year Marine. And the other classmate of mine was the honor graduate at OCS. And so they ended up making spots for us. And so that's what got me on the path to, to serving. And even then, I didn't know that I was going to do it for a career. So that's what led me to serve and what led me to the Marine Corps, uh, and then we can we can kind of get into decisions I made after that. But that, in a nutshell, uh, kind of a long-winded way of telling you how I decided that this was for me. The challenges that I had really stemmed from the fact that when things come really easily for you, you don't learn how to make your way through adversity. And so up until my time at the Naval Academy, life for me was pretty cake. You know, my parents uh, provided a really solid household for us to grow up in. My sister and I had fantastic role models. Uh, I went to a really good school. Uh, it was public school, but it was really good school. Um, I had a good friend group academics in high school. We didn't have AP per se back then, but I was in, you know, honors classes had no problem. Didn't have to study very often. Things came very easily. And then I ran into the buzzsaw of, of the United States Naval Academy and the curriculum, you know, when you're a freshman in college, uh, in an environment that's as intense as that. And on top of that, you try to be a varsity athlete. You know, 18, 19, 20 semester hours is, is pretty tough. So you try to find ways to adapt. And it took me a little bit of time. And, you know, I am not ashamed or afraid to admit that, you know, my first grade point average in college at the United States Naval Academy, a lot of people say it's not college, but was, I think, a 0.99. And that was a big blow to me you know, even with the strict regimen that we had, it was still a little bit of freedom that I wasn't accustomed to. And so the decision whether to study or not, uh, the decision whether to actually go to bed, you know, when you, were, when you should go to bed because you know you're going to wake up super early, all of those things, I was enjoying the freedom of being able to, to make those decisions on my own. And I just made bad decisions. And that's what led to me being a poor academic performer. And so from that first semester on, everything became do or die for me I think when all was, when all was said and done, I probably went to three maybe four uh, academic review boards and I only say maybe because I think I went to one that I didn't even know about I, I remember I vaguely remember getting a letter uh, in my inbox back then we didn't have email as prolific as it is now it was a, it was an actual type letter. Uh, saying, hey, you know, the academic board has reviewed your case and has decided to retain you. Uh, And that was a bit of a shock because I didn't even know I'd gone up for one. Um, The tradition, and it is a well-established tradition, is called the anchorman. Obviously appropriate because it's the United States Naval Academy and the Naval Services is where we, we feed into. And Anchors away is, is the school fight song. So, and so an anchor tends to kind of drag you down or hold you in place. But the anchorman or the anchor midshipman is probably what they call it now, um, is that midshipman who has the lowest possible grade point average yet still graduates. And the last semester and a half or so, it's a really tense time for about 50 or so midshipmen. Uh, and our anchor man at the time was the captain of our cross country team, track team. And I, I, I did two sports. I did football and track three, if you counted indoor and outdoor. And so, uh, I'm pretty sure he won't have any issues with me saying his name. Um, but Greg Keller and a phenomenal individual, um, we called him Woody. Um, but he was an amazing long distance runner. And, uh, you know, he like me. And several others had, you know, we just we kind of struggled on the academic side of things. But those last that last semester and a half, though, it literally is a a fraction of a grade point average or qualitative point rating Cooper is what we called it. And uh, you had to have a 2.0 in order to graduate. But, you know, there are people who have graduated with a 2.0 or a 2.01 or something along those lines, and I'm not sure exactly what Woody ended up graduating with, but he was indeed our anchor man. I, I had removed myself from the running um, the second semester of our junior year or our second class year. I managed to to get my academics up enough that I I gave myself a good enough buffer that I was no longer in the running. Uh, for the anchorman position, but I was probably a, a, a solid contender for uh, for for three of the four years I was at the Naval Academy to be the anchorman. It is certainly not something you aspire to. Uh, you, you certainly don't want to be in that position because literally you're right on the edge, teetering on getting kicked out for ac- poor academic performance. Um, my first class year, my senior year, uh, the anchorman tradition was on full display because a guy from the class ahead of us, uh, a guy named Lonnie Stair. I played football with as well, he ended up transitioning over to be a baseball player. He was the anchorman and Dave Letterman had heard about the, the tradition and he invited Lonnie on to uh, the late show. And you know, Lonnie goes in as an ensign, he's wearing his whites and uh, he's explaining the whole anchorman tradition to Dave Letterman in front of a national audience. And then he does something that all of us just at one point cringed, but at the same time, we're like, yeah. Okay. Uh, he does a rate, you know, for those who have heard about the Naval Academy, we have these things called rates and they ask you to do these mundane, repetitive things that are intended to teach you attention to detail, um, as well as, you know, kind of hone in your ability to, to, to remember specific facts. And the one particular rate that Lonnie did on national television was how's the cow, which is a, a question that the upper class will ask plebes at the table, um, just to test their memory. And it's, uh, it's a ridiculous little thing, but basically you're supposed to guess how much milk is left in the in the carton. And Lonnie did this on national television. So that was another motivator, I think, for a lot of people to not be the anchor man so that you didn't go on to David Letterman and embarrass yourself or or potentially the school uh in front of a national audience. Although I go back to it, I, I don't think Lonnie embarrassed any of us. It just at the moment we were all putting ourselves in his shoes and going, Holy shit, I hope I'm I'm not that guy <laughs> or gal. So so that was that was probably one of my my most uh vivid memories is, uh, is my attempts to stay above the line so that it was not indeed the anchorman. I think when I was there, everybody donated somewhere between a dollar to $10. So if you are indeed the anchorman or anchor midshipman, um, you're going to walk away you know, with with a couple thousand dollars in your pocket, thank duty. You know, thanks to your classmates, because uh, particularly those who were down there, close to the bottom with you, they were. We gladly gave our money to someone else. It's like, ah, oh, thank goodness it wasn't me, kind of thing. So yeah, uh, it, it is a money maker, but it's a it's one of those. It's it's worse than going to Vegas. That that's a gamble that uh, even Vegas is probably uh, not willing to take on. So. So I, I got Marine Corps. I was I was fortunate enough to be able to commission as a second lieutenant in the Marine Corps. You know, the day we walked across May 26, 1993, uh, in the middle of a hot you know afternoon, I, I was commissioned Second Lieutenant Bolden. I uh, rendered my first salute to my father. Um, and then I, I stayed on at the academy for another eight or nine months uh, as a graduate assistant with the football program, which was necessary for me. A, it taught me that my school was actually pretty awesome in hindsight, it sucks to be there. It really, really sucks to be there, but it's an amazing place to be from. And Annapolis is one of the most beautiful cities in the country. And I got an opportunity to enjoy that, you know, as a relatively normal person for several months. And then I went to the basic school on a ground contract. So I actually was not an aviator. My performance did not merit getting an aviation contract. Um, even with the assistance of, of my, my benefactor, whoever that was, uh, I was just given... You know, I was just afforded the opportunity to be commissioned as a, as a ground contract Marine. I went to the basic school, um, had an amazingly fun time. And, and I know there's a lot of people who've gone through there and say, are you crazy? I mean, one of the, one of the nicknames for the basic school, We first off, we call it TBS. Everything in, in the military becomes an acronym, whether it makes sense or not. In this particular case, the basic school is just TBS, OCS, Officer Candidate School. Uh, but the other term that a lot of people say for TBS is the big suck. Because a lot of people just they don't have a very good time with it. I and several of my uh, contemporaries, we had a blast. We had we had an awesome time at the basic school. Our company commanders uh, were really, really good at teaching us the ropes and what it meant to be a provisional rifle company commander. And I excelled at the basic school. You know, it was a physical place. I having been an athlete and just. I had enjoyed the physicality of it. I excelled and and I got along with all my my classmates. And so I got good peer reviews and whatnot. As as a result of that, I then basically won an aviation contract out of the basic school. And so that's how I I became an aviator. I was a bit surprised because my eyesight isn't the best. But when I went and took my flight physical, um, lo and behold, I was qualified and I had a really, really solid mentor uh, as one of the SBCs, a fine upstanding, incredible human being officer uh, named Ed McGee, class of 87. You know, he had looked up to my father as he came up through the ranks. uh, And then when he saw me come along, he decided to kind of take me under his wing and uh, convince me that aviation was a place I needed to go for several reasons that I now know uh, as to why he pushed that. So Ed, uh, black like myself, uh, was an aviator, uh, A6 bombardier navigator, uh, eventually transitioned to the F-18, but what Ed saw, was that there was a paucity of color in the Marine aviation ranks and he wanted to make sure that he did his part to make sure that those who were qualified, that's a key thing because I know a lot of people always push back on these things, but to make sure that those who were qualified had an opportunity or were afforded the opportunity to to go into the aviation community and contribute to the Marine Corps and the nation as aviators. And so through his his mentorship, his coaxing, his, his pushing me along. I went and took the physical, took the AQTFAR, passed both of them. The, the physical bit of a surprise me because I knew my eyes weren't the best. Um, and then that was it. And all of a sudden I found out, hey, you know, Lieutenant Bolden, you're going go to go to Pensacola to become an aviator. And so I packed up a U-Haul trailer, put it behind my, I think at the time I had a Isuzu rodeo and I drove down to Pensacola, Florida to start flight school. At the time, there was a bit of a backlog. And so we sat in the pool, uh, waiting to start training for, I think I got there in mid July. I didn't start training until October, November, which really in hindsight wasn't that long, but it felt like an eternity then. But lo and behold, during that time period, I had to go to the Naval Aviation Medicine Institute. Is that what NAMI stands for? I can't remember. Uh, But when I went there, they, they indeed found out, Hey, your eyes aren't that great. (laughs) And, you know, at that time you had to be 2025 correctable to 2020 in order to be a pilot. And I was a bit concerned because I didn't really have any other options. I I'd, I'd kind of forgotten about all the other options that the Marine Corps had to offer. And I made this assumption like, oh, if I can't be an aviator, what am I going to do? But fortunately, um, a class ahead of me was a, a guy named Chandler Seagraves, another great guy. Um, Chandler had the same situation I had, had gone down as a pilot, found out his eyesight wasn't good. He had done all the legwork to make a transition from a student naval aviator to a student naval flight officer, and he had gotten all that stuff laid flat. And so all I had to do at that point was find someone who was down, you know, in the in the pipeline to be a student naval flight officer who qualified to become a student naval aviator, because there were some places around ROTC and even the academies, I guess, where the pilot slots ran out, and so in order to fly, some people just took the student naval aviator contract. I was fortunate enough to find a guy, um, Ronan Lasso. Uh, He and I swapped positions. He became a student naval aviator. I became a student naval flight officer. And then that was all she wrote. Uh, Went through flight school very much like academics is not my thing. If I wasn't a parent, when I was talking about the Naval Academy, I had a a couple of bumps at, at flight school as well. But, you know, overall, when I performed, I performed. And so, my instructors knew that it wasn't for lack of ability to fly or, or have aviation sense. They just saw that there was a bit of a focus. And so they, they just whipped me in the shape and it took getting a Marine on wing to kind of speak in the language that I could understand. And once that happened, uh, Matt Soltis, Bucket Soltis, uh, I think he lives in Colorado now. Uh, he and another guy named Ralph McCreary, Slider McCreary. Uh, the two of them about halfway through my flight school time, you know, started to speak to me as a Marine. There's a slight nuance between the way Marines speak and act and the, and the way sailors speak and act. And that that made all the difference for me. And once that happened, the light bulb went off and, and I never really looked back from aviation. So that's how I got into the aviation community through a lot of strong mentorship, which is unusual for um, you know, someone as young as I was in the service. And, and unfortunately, for a lot of, of uh, you know, uh, student naval aviators or student naval flight officers uh, of color. Uh, finding mentors is not necessarily uh, something that's right there at the ready. I was just incredibly fortunate to have have in individuals like those two that I mentioned. And then um, our XO, uh Disco Jones, uh, Major Disco Jones, who was an F4 Rio. Um, the, the three of them really had a solid impact on on my focus and my ability to to take the aviation. And without them, I, I probably wouldn't have made it through flight school, but I did. And, and that's how I became an aviator going through flight school, 94 to 96, um, you know, post Gulf War, post Cold War, we really were, it was, it was, you know, a time of unprecedented peace, right? Peace had fallen across the land. And as a young Marine, you know, your, your fangs are out, they're ready to taste blood and you really wanted to go and do something. So as I'm in flight school and as I get closer towards the end of flight school, the only choices for NFOs, for Naval flight officers in the Marine Corps was at the time, the A6 had gone away, which was my dream platform. My dad had flown it. It's the ugliest aircraft ever created. But for me, it was the most badass aircraft ever created. That's really all I wanted to fly. You know, I kind of reignited the bug for aviation by watching Top Gun, like, you know, most teenagers in the 80s. But even watching Top Gun, I wanted to be an attack guy. You know, that's what I wanted to do. Um, Unfortunately, Flight of the Intruder was just a crappy movie. Uh, You know, so not a whole lot of people decided they want to go A6s after that. But Top Gun did put that in, in my brain housing group. Uh, but when I was in the middle of flight school, there wasn't really a whole lot going on. And so the question was, do you want to go into a community that's being readily employed in the profession of arms? And in that case, at that time, in the United States Marine Corps, it was the EA-6B Prowler. The Prowler was gainfully employed, you know, as a joint asset Um, it often was not attached to the Marine Corps because the Marine Corps wasn't being called upon to do certain things at that time. But those who flew the Prowler were in the thick of whatever was happening. And so that was a bit of a dilemma. And I say a dilemma because the other side of it was, you know, go be one of the quote unquote, cool kids or cool guys, be a fighter guy, you know, get the strap on the speed jeans, pull a lot of G's and, you know, do air to air combat training. And the F-18 was just a badass plane. The Blue Angels flew it. So the choice was, Southern California, flying pointy nose jets, really cool sun and fun, or go to Cherry Point, North Carolina, never be home, but be in the thick of things. And so I was up until the night before we had to select our platform, I actually was contemplating both. I didn't know what to do. Um, but when all was said and done, you know, ego got the better of me and I was like, you know what? I want to be, I want to be a cool kid. Uh, so that's how I chose F-18s. Um, and it was, a, it was a great choice for me mainly because at that time in my life, I don't think I would have, have enjoyed being a Marine in North Carolina. There's a lot of things about, uh, Eastern North Carolina that, that, uh, for someone who looks like me with a background like me, life's not that comfortable, Uh, And at that time in my life, it probably wouldn't have been very good. So instead, I went to I was at one of the last folks assigned to El Toro um, when the fleet replacement squadron VMFAT 101 was still there, Uh, had an amazing time, you know, both learning how to fly uh, that weapons platform and living a really good life uh, for someone who hadn't gone to a real college. Uh, It was pretty good. So that's how I became an F-18 weapons and sensors officer, which is the label people use now. And it's a dying community because there are there are a limited number of two-seat F-18s in the Marine Corps. Uh, and so the Marine Corps is not producing them anymore. But originally, it was actually called a weapons and sensors officer. Um, but too many people just defaulted to weapons systems officer. And now that's what it's called. So that's how it became a, a WIZO, weapons and sensors
0: officer. Greetings from Evergreen Podcasts. head to evergreenpodcast.com slash listener survey to help a show and possibly get some free stuff for doing so. We can't thank you enough for the support. Now back to the show.
2: History is complicated. The story of human progress is long, messy, and riddled with controversies big and small. On conflicted,
1: At that time in 1997, when I joined the Fleet Marine Force or the Operating Forces, depending on your vintage of Marine Corps time, we had four F-18D squadrons. And the F-18D, so the F-18 is a marvelous plane. Obviously, as something I flew uh, a lot. Uh, I have an affinity for it, even as old as in, and decrepit as it is now. But the F-18 actually, when it was designed, in the, you know I, I couldn't point to you where this actually is on in writing, but it takes 1.4 people to effectively fly the F-18 to its maximum capability. And they didn't realize that or discover that until after the plane and the platform had kind of come into being. And so then they created the F-18B as a trainer, but then it became missionized. And the F-18D was a specific night fighter attack platform Intended to to fill the void of the A4 going away, the A6 going away, uh, and the A7. You know, even though the Marine Corps didn't have them, that going away. Um, The AV8B, which was our attack platform, was limited in its capabilities, and so the Marine Corps, you know, postured the F18D as its night attack option to give us all you know quote unquote all weather capabilities by having two people in the cockpit. The challenge with it was we kind of lost you know with the the sundowning of the of the uh, intruder, crew coordination or crew resource management, you know, having two people in a cockpit and working together kind of took a little bit of a lull. And so the early days of the F-18D, one plus one didn't always equal two, right? And this was, this was probably, this is where my athletics and, and, and the struggles I had, you know, earlier at the Naval Academy when I came through, because being a team player was really important to the success of the F-18D. If you had a pilot and a WIZO that didn't get along, one plus one actually ended up being less than one in that regard. So crew resource crew resource management or crew coordination was vital. Um, to your point, though, we were never on the carrier. We were always land-based. Um, there was a myth that was perpetuated a long time ago that once they added the, the ejection seat, into the F-18D, it took away 800 pounds of gas, which at somebody's calculation, put the F-18D below the quote unquote ladder, uh, the fuel ladder in order to be a viable player in carrier aviation. You know, The carrier is all about getting back to the boat. And so you're always looking at your fuel. And if the aircraft was not capable of holding enough fuel for you to go out, do the mission, then come back and, and get into the holding pattern prior to landing on the boat, then it was not viable. I think that that was probably mathematically true for a very short duration during the life of the F-18D, but then they went back and they revamped the fuel cells and it, it ended up being better than that. But the die had been cast. And so everybody said, all right, the F-18D is never going to go to the boat because it could, didn't have enough fuel. So we were always land based. And what that did. Um, so my first deployment was in the winter of 1997, and it was a unit deployment program to the Western Pacific Back then, it was referred to as Pacific Command or PACOM. Now, it's called Indo-PACOM. And what we did is, in order to fulfill the existing war plans that were in the Pacific, the Marine Corps signed up to always have two F-18 squadrons in the Pacific. And one of those was four deployed. At the time, it was VMFA or Marine, Marine Fighter Attack Squadron 212, the Lancers, a historic squadron. They were forward deployed in Iwakuni, Japan all the time. And they they PCS or they permit change of station Marines and their families out there to support that squadron. But we always had a rotation of a CONUS, a uh, county United States based F-18D squadron would go over there to augment them because the war plan always had a plan for one single C squadron and one two C squadron in there in order to counter some of the adversarial adversaries that we had in the Pacific in, in mainly Korea. Um, and then, you know, some of the other more becoming more well-known adversaries. And so we would go A rotation, a six month rotation would alternate between East coast and West coast. Um, for a little while, the East coast was taken out of the rotation because of Bosnia-Herzegovina. But ultimately there was a, a flopping of East coast, West coast going out to Iwakuni, Japan. And so that was my first deployment. And I remember my dad had never talked about his time, uh, when he was flying the, the the intruder and the deployments he did, he just never spoke of it because his deployment was Vietnam in uh, 1972 after I was born. So he just didn't talk about it. So I didn't really know what to expect. And so, you know, I was I was uh, newly engaged. My my fiance, now wife, and I were. We were pretty concerned that, you know, I'm going off to this far off land to to defend the nation. Uh, that At least that's what, you know, what I was told and what I believed. And so we made all kinds of preparations. Hey, what happens if you don't come back and be careful? All of these concerns about this deployment. But this is the mid 90s, mid to late 90s, nothing really going on. I mean, whichever Kim was in charge of Korea back then, you know, he'd occasionally pop off, but nothing was really going to happen about it. But I remember taking off out of Miramar uh, to go on this Western Pacific deployment. And we didn't, back then I still had, uh, or everybody still had Discman. And as the backseater, you know, I had very little things to do as far as you know, the actual flight of the aircraft as a navigator. We had our course set in Well, I was the appointed DJ for the, the beginning of the Trans-Pacific flight, the trans flight. And as we took off from Miramar, I can remember I hit play on the CD, and I played uh, "Rocket Man" by Elton John. You know, it seemed somewhat poetic as we were going off to to do this amazing thing to defend the nation. Um, that was probably the last time on my first deployment that I actually felt, uh, you know, any sense of dread or uncertainty. Because once we got there, we got into a routine, and the the UDPs in the mid to late nineties were they were the boondoggle that that people talk. That people talk about. You know, we were we were land-based in Iwakuni, Japan. We had, you know, Liberty. We had a bar. We had three different restaurants. We had a gym. We we were we were living fat and happy. Uh, we had intramural football. Uh, you know, we ended up winning the intramural football championship that year. And then intramural, intramural basketball, we didn't do so well. But I, I think I spent, you know, half my time in the gym, a quarter of my time flying, and a quarter of my time in the bar. So that was my my first Western Pacific. Experience my first deployment. After that, I had a better understanding of what those deployments are going to be. It wasn't until you know the early two thousands that I that I had to revamp or rechange or reorient my understanding of what a deployment really was. But that first Westpac was was quite impactful. It was a lot of fun. I learned a lot. Actually, on that Westpac was the the first time I had my a, a quote unquote near death experience. We were about. I don't know, 250, 260 miles off the coast of Japan in the middle of the winter. So the water temperature was probably 50 degrees and outside air temperature was probably 18 degrees. And so that's a recipe for poopy suits and all kinds of things that meant to help you survive. Well, we were out on a routine training mission. All of a sudden our fuel just, our fuel gauge just starts rapidly decreasing. You know, it's, it's called the IFE. And for the life of me, I can't remember what IFE stands for. But the fuel, both sides are just going down, going down. And my pilot and I, uh, Glenn Miles, Digger Miles, uh, amazing lacrosse player from the class of '87 from the Naval Academy as well, a good pilot, a jerky pilot, but a good pilot. Um, he and I were looking at the fuel, and we're just like, "Oh my God, what's happening?" And we're so far off the coast. There's no way if our fuel is actually leaving leaving the aircraft, you know, there's no way for us to make it back. And so we're doing all this preparation to eject over the, you know, the the, the sea of Japan, and that was really no shot of, of survival. So that was a little bit uh, disheartening for about 30 seconds until the rest of our flight looked and said, there's nothing coming out of your aircraft. Ends up, it was just a, a fuel gauge malfunction, but it was enough to kind of clue me in to, to realize it, you know, the work we were doing wasn't it was inherently dangerous. The inherently dangerous nature of being an aviator uh, came right and smacked me in the face at that moment when I when I wasn't sure if we were going to survive. But lo and behold, there was nothing wrong. We, we got back just fine. Um, rest of the deployment, fairly uneventful uh, in that regard. I, I did get to see a bit of the Western Pacific, which was cool. It was just, it was fun. It was a good learning experience. Then I came back, got married and started a family after that. My time of service was 1993 to 2019. So, you know, for those who are familiar with the, the exploits and escapades of U.S. foreign policy, post 9-11, we, we had a lot of things going on. I did not make the initial push into Afghanistan. I was on September 11th, 2001. I was actually in old school Marine Corps camouflage utilities, sleeves rolled down, sitting at the end of a bench with 180 other service men and women with a uh, T20 parachute on my back and a a reserve parachute on my front because I was at jump school. Um, I was the operations officer of First Force Reconnaissance Company. And as an aviator, it was an unusual position or billet for me to hold. But my my boss said that if you're going to hold this position, you got to know about what we do. So he sent me to jump school. Well, we'd gone through two, two and a half weeks of jump school, and then we were about to do our very first jump, um, which was an exciting time in and of itself, when all of a sudden things just kind of get chaotic. You know, the the C17s are outside turning up and we're everybody's a little bit nervous because jumping out of airplanes is not a natural thing to do. Um, and I happen to be the senior ranking officer, and so I had a relationship with the the black hats, the instructors that were there. And finally one of them comes over to me, and he's like, Hey, sir, you need to you need to tell everybody to go back to the to the barracks. Uh, the jumps canceled, you know, something's happened. the United States has been attacked. And so we all went back to the barracks or I went back to the officers quarters and flipped on the TV and and watched everything unfold, just like everybody else. Probably sat there for three or four hours with tears in my eyes, just kind of wondering what's going to happen next. Called back to my command, asked them, uh, you know, what they wanted me to do. And they just said, hold tight. We're not sure. And eventually they said, you know, coordination from Fort Benning back to the host commands was like, hey, we're going to get all of these folks through. We recognize that they're going to be necessary to have these qualifications because we don't know what's going to happen. Because we had a bunch of Rangers or or would be Rangers, you know, airborne. Uh, It's an Army school, so it's predominantly all Army. There was probably 14 Marines in the class, all of them from reconnaissance units. So getting the jump qualification was something that we thought was going to be necessary. So we finished that out and then we shipped everybody back to their units. Um, When I got back, my primary responsibility at that point was to get force reconnaissance units ready to go. And we indeed sent some of our units, some of our some of our people to augment units that were already forward deployed. And so um, Operation Anaconda, which was a Marine expeditionary unit performed the longest amphibious raid in the history of amphibious raids. Uh, we sent some folks over to augment that, but I stayed back uh, in the rear, so to speak, to continue to train force reconnaissance units to go. And so for the entire duration of the end of twenty or 2001 all the way to 2002, I was providing training and and operational guidance for one of the frontline units, which was the Force Reconnaissance Marines, who, for those who are familiar, were the precursor, they were the descendants of the Marine Raiders and the precursor of the Marine Raiders, if you will. So, Marine Special Operations Command now are are called Marine Raiders, and that's a lot of that came from the Force Reconnaissance community, the Radio Battalion, Radio Reconnaissance Battalions. EOD and signals intelligence is what comprised them of that time. But we had a lot of those things there. So I'm watching my version of what I joined the Marine Corps for from a desk at Camp Pendleton, thinking that, okay, uh, I'm not there, but I got to do the best I can. Well, it didn't take long before my tour of duty was going to be up with them. And so I ended up just going right back down to Miramar and rejoining my old squadron, uh, VMFA W225, uh, the Vikings. And we started to prepare because there had been a lot of discussions about, hey, we were going to pivot from Afghanistan to Iraq, all the things that happened there. We don't need to really go into that. But then in January, we we packed up and we deployed. We went to Al Jaber Air Base in Kuwait uh, in preparation for the inevitable uh, Operation Iraqi Freedom. We participated in Operation Southern Watch for I guess it was about two months before things kicked off. And I can remember. So I was um, I was an instructor. In the squadron. I was a Ford air controller, airborne tactical air, con- air coordinator, airborne instructor. And so we were responsible for trying to make the squadron as operationally ready as we could. And, you know, just like every military unit, it it hadn't changed its assignment policies yet. We hadn't adjusted anything the way we did as far as manpower is concerned. And so we had a third of the squadron were relatively new. And as an instructor, you know, part of my responsibility is making sure that the new guys weren't going to be you know, doing new guys stuff, and so we pair them up with with older guys like myself and others. But for some reason, I got paired up with our CO, which was fine, uh, a fantastic another mentor of mine, a guy named Mike Kennedy. Uh, McGilla was his call sign, and he and I were flying. You know what we thought was a routine OSW mission, and all of a sudden, you know, they tell us go, and I just remember the the aircraft nosing over. And, uh, you know, my CO was on the radio. And he asked somebody something. All I remember hearing, because it was a bit of a blur, was, roger that. And then the next thing I knew it was, like, boom, boom. You know, it, for those who've been in a military aircraft and those who haven't, when you release ordnance off the aircraft, it, it changes the aerodynamics of the plane. And it kind of rumbles and shakes. And when you drop, at the time we had dumb bombs on when, when the dumb bombs dropped off the wing, it kind of rocks the aircraft. And I was like, holy shit, we just, we just dropped some bombs. And that was it. That was that was the very first day of the Iraq War. Me and the CO were flying, and that was how it started. And from that point on, for about twenty days straight, you know, we we were doing what we were supposed to do. For the most part, it was a it was a numbing experience. But there was two things that came out of that that time in Iraq that I remember and I will never forget. Quite frankly, the first one was my CO uh, and I were out flying one of the days, and we had just come off the tanker. Uh, we had done an aerial refueling mission. And we came off the tank, had a full tank of gas. The day is as clear as you can imagine. And he says, hey, we're bingo. And bingo, for those who aren't aware, means that you're at the fuel state, that you have enough fuel to get home. And, and I looked at the fuel gauge and we were full. We had just come off the tanker. So, I was like, what is going on here? And then I remembered my CO had been medically down for a couple of years because he suffered from Meniere's disease, which is a destabilizing effect in the inner ear, the, the, the ability for you to keep your balance. And he had gotten cleared for it and he was fine. But at that point, even on a clear day, it came back right then and there. And I remember flying back with him and it was about an hour flight to get back to Al Jabba from where we were. And I remember thinking to myself that, uh, you know, he's the commanding officer, of a squadron in combat. This is what we'd all trained for, lived for. And he had been in the Gulf War, but nonetheless, he was the commanding officer. And so he wanted to lead his his Marines. And I remember telling him, I said, hey, sir, it, it came back, didn't it? And he's like, yep. And I said, can you see, can you see straight? He goes, nope. I said, all right, I got you. And you know, I'm talking to him and he's looking at the instruments. And about 20 minutes before we land, I said, sir, when we get back, don't say anybody, you know, I'm thinking I'm doing the right thing. Don't say anything to anybody. I got you. I'll fly with you. We'll be fine. And he sat there for a minute. And before we landed, he said, Nope, Curly. That's my call sign. He's like, I'm done. And I remember thinking to myself, Holy shit. You know, what, what, what is he feeling? What is he doing? But what it taught me was courage has all kinds of forms. And the courage that that commanding officer demonstrated that day has stuck with me ever since. He um, realized that he was perfectly capable of leading his Marines in combat without leading them in combat. And he made the decision that day to take himself off the flight schedule for the rest of the of, of our war, if you will. And I remember just being just incredibly impacted by that or influenced by that as that's the kind of leader I wanna be, you know, he, he put himself to the side. He said, what's best for the Marines that I've been charged with leading and taking care of. Uh, and he made that decision. He didn't have to, because, you know, you can judge me how you want, but I was willing to go to the mat and and, and deny that he was suffering from this disease, but uh, he wouldn't have it. He wouldn't let me do it. And he wouldn't do it. So, um, I, I have uh, the utmost respect for him for that. The second part of my experiences that, that will, you know, always, this one will kind of sort of haunt me was um, all of the different times that we were, you know, I, I was on the Dawn Patrol. Uh, after the CO went down, uh, I got paired up with a guy who's, who's still a lifelong friend of mine named Matt Shortle. Uh, and Matt, you know, had never been in a D squadron until in the two C squadron until about, I don't know, four months before he went to Iraq. So it was a bit of an adjustment for him to have a Uh, For him to be my stick monkey, as I love to tell him, and if he hears this, he'll he'll get a chuckle out of that. Um, But he and I, you know, we'd get on the dawn patrol, and we would go out. You know, we'd take off at like three or four in the morning, and and it was nerve wracking every day because at that point, you know, things were kind of quiet, and you were always waiting to hear. You know someone come across the radio and when they when that when the radio crackled you knew things were okay because that means that the marines that you were there to support were still there they're still in the fight and what they were doing and for those who are not familiar the marine corps is somewhat unique in that the guy on the other end of the radio was probably sitting in the cockpit with you the year prior we do this program called the Ford air controller uh, and so we'd always assign an aviator to a ground unit and they would go down and they would be the ones who would coordinate on behalf of the ground commander aviation support. And we had several of my old squadron mates were attached to the units that were making their way to Baghdad. And so every morning we were always on pins and needles as to whether they would answer the radio. But every morning they did. Um, But one day, and it was in the middle of the day almost, where we were just outside of Baghdad and um, one of the units had gotten into what we call a danger close situation, which means that the enemy is within, you know, a very close distance. Uh, where in in a lot of cases you can actually see the whites of their eyes, you know, going back to that old proverb or that old uh, um, whatever you call it, analogy. And we were the forward air controller airborne, which is an extension of the forward air control on the ground. The fact on the ground, it was uh, an, I think it was a tank battalion. They actually had to go inside the tank and close the hatch. So he no longer had the ability to see and direct air traffic. So we took responsibility for that and it being danger close, um, you know, when you're up at 18,000 feet, it's really hard to make sure that, you know, your your weapons don't don't infringe upon friendly forces and they're only going to the enemy. Um, and so that was a stressful situation. And we ended up having to take our aircraft down below the, the floor that we were told we couldn't go below, which I think was 10,000 feet. And we're down flying it, you know, 1,500 feet down to 700 feet in order to provide this air support. And my pilot, Matt Shortle, uh, we got into a position where only thing we had that was a viable weapon where we wouldn't frag, you know, fellow Marines was a 20 millimeter cannon in the nose of the F-18. And uh, I don't think Matt had shot, had pulled the trigger on the cannon since he had been in the FRS. So like five, six years before this, and this is the first time he's going to fire it. And we're firing it, you know, in anger. And we were both understandably nervous. And he was so focused on making sure that he got those rounds where they needed to be. Both of us did notice that there's all these puffs of gray smoke and whatnot going off around us. And so we were basically in the heart of the AAA, you know, zone. And so once we had finished that run, all I could do was tell him to pull up, you know, you know, evade chaff flares, whatever. And in the nervousness, you know, he goes to full afterburner, which is not the thing we're supposed to do. And I'm encouraging him to go to full afterburner so that we can climb and get out of that. Um, but that wasn't the harrowing part of it. Actually, that was, we had been trained for that. The, the part that sucked was uh, the, one of the tank commanders didn't make it through. And we felt a certain certain sense of responsibility for that. Because that's what we were there to prevent. And we weren't able to and uh to this day we we used to um, every flight we would take uh, flags we'd fly flags with us because you know those are the types of things that when you go into a Starbucks or into a Mission barbecue you know you see these flags that people flew you know in defense of the nation and whatnot and and I had a couple flags with me and I remember um, I remember that day and I still have the flag in my closet because it belongs to someone else and one of these days, one of these days I'll get up the courage to deliver it, but I haven't found that courage yet. So I've carried that flag with me through, uh, several PCS moves, um, I end up flying it again with me uh, at a later deployment, but I'm someday. I hope I have I can find the courage to deliver it. I mean, I have the last known address. I have his parents' names. Um, I picked up the phone probably 10 times to try and call them. But, you know, as a Marine, and and, and I would like to think that any leader in any service, you know, you take a certain sense of responsibility for those that you're charged to protect. And so that's, you know, the reason why I still get choked up is because that was one of the the few times I feel like I didn't do the job I was supposed to do. Um, and, And I, and I, I'm getting closer to that day, uh, because the thing I feel probably ashamed about is that it's not about me at all. And so I, you know, I keep projecting my own, you know, feeling of embarrassment and disappointment on this when in reality, I need to, I need to be a, a grown up and, uh, and go and do that. So maybe, maybe as a result of our conversation here, I'll finally do it. But nonetheless, that, that that's one of the things I carry with me still to this day. Um, I mean, one of my favorite books is, uh, is a book by Simon Sinek called Start With Why. And what I pulled from it, which I hope was his point, was you got to have a purpose for everything you do. And, he, you know, he writes his books in a business context, right? He's trying to teach business people how to go about, um, you know, being better business, be, being better at business and how to how to bring people you know, he's gone. He's actually studied the military quite a bit and, and the methodologies that we've had in order to build solid teams. But the premise of the book is, you know, a lot of people focus on the what's in the how's and very few people actually remember what the why of it was. The why for me, you know, when I joined the military was my first bit of why was I wanted to emulate these people that I had had so revered and looked up to in my childhood and in my young adult life. When I went to go on my force reconnaissance tour, I was actually done. I was like, you know what? Uh, the aviation community is really cutthroat and um, and we sometimes get really full of ourselves. It was the two years I spent with the Marines at Force Reconnaissance Company that, re, that kind of reinvigorated my desire to, to be a Marine, active duty Marine in uniform and, and doing what Marines do because it became about the people at that point. You know, I met some of the most amazing men um, because we hadn't opened everything up to, to women at that point. But, but throughout my time as a United States Marine, I met some of the most amazing human beings um, that I had the privilege to call Marines, friends, brothers, sisters. And so, you know, finding out what, you know, what that reason for why you want to serve. And it's not always it's not always about the, the, the super patriotic. Hey, I'm going to go and defend freedom. You know, we, we do a really good job of selling that via Hollywood and other things. But a lot of times. Some people join because that's their their best option. Some people join because they don't know what they're doing with their life and they want to find some kind of a reason or purpose. Whatever the reason is, it doesn't matter as long as you understand why it is you're there and you fully commit to it. You know, I was able to achieve the rank of colonel through performance, uh, but also somewhat in spite of a couple of things. I mean, you know, this maybe bears a whole different conversation at a certain time, but when you look like me or you look like my father, uh, in the United States Marine Corps, in particular, you know, there's not really, there's no real clear path to get to where we we got. I mean, in the history of United States Marine Corps aviation, which is a little over 110 years old, um, there have only been three Black general officers of the aviation community to make it to that rank: Frank Peterson in 1979, Charles Bolden in, in 1996, and Brian Kavanaugh in 2016. Three. Last year at this time, in the United States Marine Corps tactical aviation community, i.e., fast jets out of 581 pilots, there were only three that were black. So for me to have reached the rank of Colonel, it's not lost on me that that was, you know, a bit of an accomplishment. Um, Like I had alluded to, I had really good mentors early on and they helped reinforce that why, you know, I was there to take care of other people. You know, the sole responsibility of an officer and even I dare say a staff non-commissioned officer is to take care of those Marines, sailors, Airmen, Coast Guardsmen, Guardians that are out there. That's why officers exist. You know, anybody who, who wants to delude themselves and think that they're there as an officer because they're smarter or they're better at something, I'll just flat out say that's bullshit. Um, you are there for one reason and one reason only, and that's to make sure the young women and men of this nation that have, have raised their right hand get the best leadership that they can have. And that became my why by the end of it. I think. You know, I won't put words in my father's mouth, but he I've heard him say things very similar. It, all, it became always about those young women and men uh, that we had the privilege of of calling Marines. You know, I, I'd imagine the same thing applies for you and the Navy and anybody else who's listening from the other services. So that that's the big lesson I pull away from it. Always, always remember why you're doing what you're doing. And if you forget that, it's either time to go and do something else or you need to do some soul searching and kind of get back to it. Because without understanding that, you know, you're kind of rudderless.
0: That was Colonel Shea Bolden. Thanks for listening to Warriors In Their Own Words. If you have any feedback, please email the team at kharbaugh at evergreenpodcasts.com. We're always looking to improve the show. For updates and more, follow us on Twitter at team underscore harbaugh. And if you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to rate and review. Warriors In Their Own Words is a production of Evergreen Podcasts in partnership with The Honor Project. Our producer is Declan Roars, Bridget Coyne is our production director, and Sean Ruhl-Hoffman is our audio engineer. Special thanks to Evergreen executive producers Joan Andrews, Michael DeAloya, and David Moss. I'm Ken Harbaugh, and this is Warriors in Their Own Words.
2: Hello, this is Gary Chahot, welcoming you to check out the French History Podcast. and numerous others. Learn what you love and listen to the French History Podcast today.